today. Reed is a UHI graduate, but if you know much about Reed and the PGA, you know that most people are not pulling for him. Why? Well, because he has a reputation. He has a reputation outside of the game of golf that causes people, although he is a phenomenal golfer, causes people to pull against him. He was charged with many charges when he uh, was removed from the the Georgia team in college. And uh, one of the assistant coaches said, while getting to know Patrick through the recruiting process as coach, a few character issues came to light that we as coaches thought we could help him with. Once he came on campus for a few months, it became clear that Patrick was not going to mesh with the makeup of the team at that time. And he was dismissed from the team. There's no doubting the ability of Patrick as a golfer. It was Patrick as a person that we chose not to associate with. And so I don't want to defame this man. I wish him the best. He may very well win. The odds are in his favor. He may win today. But many people are pulling against him, not because of what matters on the course, but because of what matters more than what matters on the course. Because of character because of integrity. And if it can make a difference in your fan base as a golfer, how much more of a difference does that make for us who are supposed to be the ambassadors for Christ? Something not just of the significance, uh, you know, relating to the PGA Tour, but something of eternal weight and significance. Brothers and sisters, if you are a child of God, If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are also an ambassador, His representative. We we celebrate the partnership that we have with those who are going to Nicaragua and the missionaries who live there, with Eric and those who will be serving in Egypt, with Jessica in the Middle East, and other partnerships that we have. And we're thankful for those missionaries who go to spread the Gospel message all across the globe. All the while, brothers and sisters, remember that we have a responsibility to display that same gospel right here every day. I want us to look at Romans 13, and it's interesting. You're not going to see the connection immediately, perhaps, but trust me, it's there, and I hope in short time you will. We'll see this idea of everyday living with an eternal focus. We've been journeying through Romans We've gotten all the way through chapter 12. 12 is the the chapter where it turned really practical, where he tells us what it means to live a life surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's marked by love. And at the end of chapter 12, he gives us several distinctives of the type of love, the love that we express to one another and the love that we express to even our enemies, those outside. That's what he's talked to us about so far. And here we are. In Romans chapter 13, let me pray and then read it. Father, we ask for the anointing of Your Holy Spirit on the words that I speak and on our ears as we hear. Lord, would You connect them directly to our hearts. I pray, God, that You would help that miraculous work to happen in us that's more than just our minds being informed by the truth of Scripture, but Lord, by the power of Your Spirit, would our lives be transformed and conformed to the likeness of Christ so that we can reflect Him to this community and this world that desperately needs to to see 
the love of Christ, the hope of the Gospel, the salvation that's available to us only through Jesus. Lord, help us. Help us to display that message instead of distracting from it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pray to all, uh, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us properly, as in, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. Now, you might not see the connection at first to living as witnesses, putting the gospel on display, and this word to submit to the government leadership that's established. But there's a connection here. And yes, we're taking this whole chapter, a big chunk, but we're going to move through it rather quickly. We only have two points here, so be ready. Two points for a whole chapter. The main idea is this. As dual citizens, Christians are compelled by love to put the gospel on display. As dual citizens, we, children of God, have a citizenship that transcends all kingdoms of this earth. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's our ultimate, eternal, abiding citizenship. All that we do, here, now, and for the rest of eternity, we will do as citizens of the kingdom of God. But for the time being, most of us right here are also citizens of the United States of America. And that is not accidental or coincidental. 
It's by God's design. And He has a plan for you, brother, sister, to, be a dual, to have dual citizenship. He has a mission for you, a ministry that He's entrusted to you, and that's what He's dealing with. And so He gives us what He's... Here's the prevailing question. In light of the dual citizenship that we have, we have a responsibility in our earthly citizenship to be ambassadors of our heavenly kingdom. To share Jesus, simply put, with as many people as we possibly can. In the most profound ways that we possibly can. As long as we're here. Wherever God have, has us, we're His ambassadors. That's living in the present, in the here and now, with an eternal focus. So here's the, here's the prevailing question. Will you, in your everyday life, will you distract from the gospel or display the gospel to people? There's two areas. I told you there's two points. The first one, we as those with a dual citizenship, we have the responsibility to display the gospel in our public life. That's kind of an overarching way to state what Paul is talking about when he talks about our need to submit to government authorities. Now, there's several things that he's, that he's talking about here. And as we walk through these points, I want to ask some questions and I want to invite you to reflect on them as, and I'm assuming here that you're a child of God. And I realize that there are some who are not yet there. And so there's this standing invitation for those of you who are not yet citizens of the kingdom of God to come and join with us. And as I describe what this means for us, the calling that we have on our lives, perhaps it's a calling that the Lord is stirring in your heart right now. And I don't want you to try to implement the, these instructions without first accepting the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. Don't, don't put the cart before the horse here. So I just want to say that at the onset. There's a standing invitation, but I'm not trying to add a checklist of things for you to do in order to, to gain God's approval. But questions for those that already have a dual citizenship. Do you, question number one, in light of displaying the gospel in your public life, do you distract by isolation from society or display the gospel by integration into society? Paul is giving this instruction to the Christians in Rome. Now they are at the, at the seat, the, the, the hot spot of where the, Roman, the, the mighty Roman Empire is ruled. And there has been a tendency throughout the centuries for at least some Christians, once they accept Jesus Christ as their king and their, their allegiances to Him, to completely disconnect from the world altogether. To say that I'm no longer of this world. And, and that's true, right? God delivers us from the domain of darkness. But there have been people in church history, monks for instance, who, who decided that the most spiritual thing that they could do is set up monasteries where they would isolate themselves from the real world so that they could know God better. Now the problem with that is that's not what God's called us to do. That's not what He's called us to be. We have all of eternity to spend in the presence of God. And we spend our lives here and now in the presence of God by walking in obedience 
to the life that he's instructed us to live. And he's told us, for instance, in the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that we're called to be salt and light. That means we have to be scattered throughout society. We have to be shining the light of Christ in the midst of darkness amongst the people, right? Jesus tells us, and we looked at it this past Wednesday night uh, in our membership class, which by the way, uh, if you want to be a, a member of the Oaks Church, I invite you to consider that. We're in the middle of membership classes. We had our first one this Wednesday night. We'll have the, the, the second and last one, not this coming, but the next Wednesday night. And uh, if you want to play catch up, we can, I can get you a binder and uh, send you the audio so you can listen to the, the class that we did this past Wednesday night. Just see me after service. But I mentioned this Wednesday, I mentioned in talking about the church, I mentioned Matthew chapter 16. The first use of the word church in the New Testament. And one of the things we're told about the church that the Lord establishes is that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, that assumes something, right? That assumes that the church is not isolating itself from, you know, where those gates, the domain of darkness is. Instead, we're charging, we're moving forward into, towards, in the power of the Spirit, with the authority of Christ. And we're told that we will walk victorious over the powers of darkness. So we don't isolate. Instead, we have to be intentional about displaying the gospel by integrating into society. And that's the assumption in which this instruction about our relationship with government authority relates. So, think about your own walk with Jesus. Do you distract from the gospel by isolation from society or display the gospel by integration in the right way into society? Question number two, do you, do you distract by insubordination to authority or display the gospel by submission to authority? And that is, verses 1 through 7, that is the dominant instruction that we're told. We're told several times you see the word authority and the word submission. You see it all throughout these verses. Submit to the government authority. Verses 1 through 5, for instance, I'll give you the logical flow of it really quickly. Submit to the government authority. That's what verse uh, 1 says. Be subject to the governing authorities. And he gives us some grounds for it. Because it is instituted by God, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. What this is saying is that those who are in authority over you and your government, he's, he's writing this to the Romans, they're there because God wants them there. And I know that you say, well, they're corrupt. They're crooked. How can, they, how can God want them there? Well, look, you say that about our situation and what, what you know, but I can assure you that the Roman government here in the first century under Nero was much worse, much more oppressive. The taxes that were being levied upon the people of God, I could talk about this for a long time, the history of it, but I can assure you, Christians, what he is, if he is instructing them in the first century in Rome to submit to the authority of Nero... And how dare I say, how can I submit to some man like Donald Trump? Well, we submit because it's instituted by God. And resisting the authority that God has established is resisting God's authority. 
Now, the flip side of this is also true. If resisting the authority that God has established is resisting God's authority, then submitting to the authority that God has established is an expression of our trust in the sovereignty of God. In other words, we submit to the authority that God has placed in our life, not because that authority, that person is worthy of our submission, but because God established it and we trust Him. He's sovereign over it. And, so my, and the same thing, by the way, uh, is told of wives and their submission to their husbands when you look in Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands only when he's uh, of noble character. No, it doesn't say that. Submit to him as unto the Lord, as the one that the Lord has established. And I'm not going into, this isn't a sermon on marriage, but the principle is found in other places in Scripture. Submission is trusting the sovereign plan of God. And we have examples in Scripture of Jesus, for instance, as he is standing there before Pontius Pilate about to be crucified. And he's standing there silent, and Pilate is asking for him to defend himself. And Pilate says to him in in John chapter 19, why won't you answer me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And you remember what Jesus said to him? You only have authority because my Father in heaven has given it to you. So Jesus is demonstrating for us this reality that he can submit to him not because he knows that Pilate is worthy of his submission, but because he knows that God is sovereign over even the corrupt leadership of Pilate. We see also logic here. We see God's purpose for the government. He entrusted them with a sword to carry out His wrath toward those who do wrong, to punish bad conduct and approve or reward good conduct. This is just kind of uh, what He's describing here. I don't want to go too slowly through that. Another ground for our submission to authority is because there are consequences, verse 2 says, there are consequences to resisting authority. Look at verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now that begs the question, if you resist the authority of the government, there's going to be punishment. From whom? Is it talking about right here, there's going to be consequences like jail time or fines or death sentence or whatever those consequences may be as they're doled out by the government? Or is it talking about if you resist the authority that God has placed through the government, that you will incur punishment from Him? Which one is He talking about there? The answer is yes. I love doing that. The answer is yes. And actually, I know for certain that he's, it, it is obviously you incur the, the consequences from the government. Like if you speed, you choose to disregard the law, you receive a ticket and a fine. And it's painful. But there, when you just blatantly disregard the authority that God has established, look at what verse 5 says. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, which clarifies that for us, doesn't it? It's not only talking about the temporal punishment that we incur whenever we disregard the authority of our, our established government. It's talking about the fact that God holds us to this. He's saying one of the motives 
for us to be in subjection to the government that God has established over us is so that we don't incur not only the punishment that they dole out, but the wrath of God. Because our, dis- dis- our insubordination to them is ultimately insubordination to God. But not only should we submit in order to avoid the consequences, but we should submit just because it's the right thing to do. That's what verse 5 said. It said not one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. God wants us to have a clear conscience before Him and before people. He's called us to live a life and we'll see it momentarily uh, in the direction of holiness, and this is a part of it. Another question. So not only do you distract by insubordination or display the gospel by submission to authority, do you distract by selfish greed or display the gospel by sacrificial giving? And this is in relation to our, our cooperation in society. In verses 6 and 7, and this is really the direction he's, he's talking about our submission to governmental authority, but he's, he's giving us an application of a principle that's, just, that's bigger than, than just our role and how we submit to the leadership and the government that God has established. God has a plan for government, and we shouldn't be trying to isolate ourselves or, or usurp the, the order that God has established. This is an institution that God has established But look at verse 6 and 7. Let me read them again. For because of this, that is the role of the government, that God has a purpose for it, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers to God attending to this very thing. Now this is April. (laughs) We're coming up on April 15th. And I know that really like, that's a painful blow to some of us. Yes, you pay taxes. And the Bible is saying, yes, pay taxes because that's what, you know, Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar. This This is why God ordained government. This is the way the government is funded. And is it a broken system? Yes. But does that mean that you don't pay taxes? No. He's saying pay. And he pushes it a little farther. He says in verse 7, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. And he's applying this back to our relationship to governmental authority. But he's extending the principle beyond beyond just treating the government like we should treat the government, to treating people, being selfless. This is an extension of of what it means. And verse 8 shows us love is the fulfillment of all the requirements of God, and He's applying that to our relationship in society. Here's how we put other people first. We We don't live by selfish greed, trying to withhold all that we can for our sake, but instead, we support what God has established in the government, and we give what we owe. We, we pay our portion instead of trying to fight it. And I said this, this extends beyond just the government giving to others what you owe, like employees, pay them, pay them well. Respect and honor, give to your parents. Children, give the respect and honor to your parents, even though they're imperfect. Sometimes they're going to say things to you more harshly than they should. Sometimes their example to you is going to fail. It's going to miss the mark, but you know what? That doesn't mean that you don't respect them or that you respect them any less. Why? Because God has told you to honor your father and your mother, and so you need to give honor to whom honor is due because those are the ones that God placed in your life, and it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. And if they're horrible parents... 
God has a reason for that too if you will just trust him as the one who's bigger than all of that. I want to talk more about this, but I also want to move forward. So I need to bring up this, this one idea that's probably run through all of our minds. And nothing is said in these verses about it. But there's an objection. When you start talking about submission to government, of course there's an objection when you say paying taxes. But there's an objection. What if you're supposed to do this for the sake of conscience, right? So that you don't incur the wrath of God. So if I don't submit to government, God's going to punish me? And it's the only way to have a clear conscience. But what if, and I don't know if you've ever found yourself in this situation where doing what the government requires of you, is requiring of you, or authority figure in your life is requiring of you, would actually bother your conscience. Like my conscience won't let me submit to this. Am I still supposed to submit? Is it ever right to disobey authority? And if it is, how do we know when it's okay? Is it okay if that authority is in opposition to us, or if it's corrupt, or if it's oppressing us? Does that mean that it's okay? And I'll say to you, no. Actually, that's not the case. I mean, I'll point back to the the picture of, of Pilate and Jesus. Jesus submitted to him, and it was very, very corrupt and oppressive. It wasn't right. But he trusted the sovereignty of God nonetheless. Christians, hear this. There are times when we have to, we have to disobey the authorities that are placed over us, but there's there's one way to know when it's the right thing to do. And here's the question we ask. Not, is it the most comfortable thing for us? Is it the best thing for you personally? Because I know that some people teach that God never wants His children to suffer. But friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Christians suffer all the time. But that when Christians suffer, it's for a glorious purpose. That God is going to make the gospel crystal clear and particularly powerful through your suffering. And His grace is going to sustain you and His presence is going to be dear to you, and and you're going to experience Him in a more profound way in the midst of your suffering. Those are the promises that we have in the midst of our suffering. And so, to say, I cannot do with the government, I cannot go with the government because it's oppressive, it's painful, that's the instruction that we have in Scripture is to submit because it's established by God. But we are given reasons why the government exists, to punish the evildoers, to reward the righteous. So if government or authority is contradicting the command of God, then the right thing for us to do is to disobey. And we have some examples in Scripture. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, I'll just read the one in chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 29 through 32, we see Peter and the apostles disobeying the government authority. Why? Because they told them, they strictly charged them to no longer speak in the name of Jesus. Things were happening. People were being saved. People were being healed. And it was causing a movement that the government, the religious people and the government did not want to see happen. And they said, you've got to stop it. However, just a few weeks before that, Jesus told them very clearly, preach the gospel. 
you got to preach. So they had the Lord Jesus Christ, who the Bible says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Preach the gospel to all nations. He told them that. And then we have the local authorities saying, don't preach in his name anymore. Here's their response. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They said in chapter 4 to the religious leaders, whether it is right for us to obey God or men, you decide. But as for us, we can't help but to speak of the things that we've seen and heard. And so here's the criteria for disobedience. When the authority is forcing us, whether that be government authority, parental authority, husband authority, whatever it is, when they're forcing us to disobey the command of God, something that's clearly known to be the command of God, then the right thing for us to do with a clear conscience as dual citizens is to walk out our supreme allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But everything else, just because it's uncomfortable or painful or we think they're corrupt or we don't like the direction that it's going, that is not grounds for insubordination. And if we consider it grounds for insubordination or withdrawal, isolation, then what we're doing is we're distracting from this portrayal of the gospel that we're called to put on display. That that is what I mean when I say that we are to display the gospel in the public life. You know, you've heard it said that we're to be in the world, but not of the world. In in relation to the government, we trust the sovereign rule of God. He put you here. He called you out of the world, out of the world. Then he commissioned you back into it. Nothing is accidental, not the place where you were born, not the country where your earthly citizenship is found. God placed you there. But even more than your placement in this earthly citizenship, you're called to be a citizen of His everlasting kingdom, and you're on a rescue mission. And God is telling us in these verses how to do it effectively. It's not always the most comfortable thing, but it's crucial that we have this eternal perspective in our everyday life. But not only should we display the gospel in our public life, the remaining verses challenge us to display the gospel in our personal life. So here's another question. Do you distract by using others or display the gospel by serving them? In verses 8 through 10, Jesus tells us that love, loving others, is the fulfillment of all the law, the commands of God. Love, by definition, is the fulfillment of the commands of God. You think about the Ten Commandments, for instance. The first four are telling us, describing how we love God with all of our heart, mind, strength, and soul. And the last six are telling us how we love our neighbor as ourselves. Loving God and loving people. That's why he says, the one who loves another, and at the end of verse 8, has fulfilled the law. That's why he says in verse 10, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. 
The opposite of love, if you go through those commandments, and you can look at the ones that he lists here, for instance, commit adultery, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. The essence of all of those evil acts towards people is us using people for our own pleasure. It's the, it's the, the antonym, the opposite of love. Using people for our own pleasure. And so love, loving people to not steal, to not murder, to not commit adultery, and all of those things, what we're doing is we're saying, I'm not going to do anything that, where I would use another person or some possessions of a person for my pleasure. Instead, I'm going to sacrifice of myself to serve and bless and help other people. Is that not the essence of the Christian life that Jesus has called us to live? That's why he says, look, don't get bogged down in all these you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. It's good instruction. It's the word of God. But here it is in a nutshell. Love people. Don't use them for your own pleasure. Instead, serve them. And here's how you put the gospel on display. This is what the Lord Jesus did. And when we serve people for their own good, we reflect the nature of Christ. We add, we add credibility to the message that we preach. If we preach about love, but we walk around using people, then we're like a good golfer that has a terrible attitude that nobody wants to pull for. Nobody wants to listen to us. Nobody will give us the time of day. Nobody will believe us. Instead of displaying the gospel, though we preach it with eloquence, we distract from the gospel because our life screams so much louder and so much more convincingly than our words. Love is the fulfillment. Do you distract by using others or display the gospel by serving them? And my final question, do you distract by sinful habits or display the gospel by striving for holiness? Verses 11 through 14 are a call for us to have a sense of urgency, realizing that we don't have a lot of time to waste. We're closer to the return of Christ than we were yesterday, than when we first believed. Every day, we don't know when He's coming back. We don't know when our life is going to end or when the world as we know it is going to, when it's going to end. We have no idea. But we do know this. It's getting closer minute by minute, and Christians are called to live with a sense of urgency. Paul helps us to see one of the reasons why striving for holiness, that is, the type of lifestyle, putting aside sin, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, why it's important. Friends, it's not important because, and this is, this is understanding the gospel, it's not important because you have to prove something to God, or you have to earn something from God. No, that's all been settled at the cross. So why is holiness important? One, because when you strive for holiness, you're able to enjoy the presence and the company of God in a way that you cannot if you don't. And when you strive for holiness, you are, you are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ so that people can see Him. You're putting Him on display. And if you live a life, you say, I'm a Christian, I'm saved by grace through faith, it doesn't matter how I live, then guess what you're doing? You are defaming the name of Christ. You are causing people to spurn the Son of God. You are causing people to think that the message of the gospel is a lie. 
That the Spirit of God is not powerful, is not able to transform. That the love of God is not real and not worth seeking. That they don't even want to know God. If if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. We're called to preach the gospel with the life that we live. Do you distract by your sinful habits or display the gospel by striving for holiness? Time is too short to waste. People need to see Christ and you're His ambassador. People often quote Francis of Assisi as saying, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. There's something wrong with that quote. Two things. Number one, you got to tell people. You got to speak about Jesus. How can they hear unless someone preaches? Romans 10 said, We have to talk. Number two, Francis of Assisi never said it. Everybody quotes it. Francis of Assisi, starting back with Chuck Swindoll in 1991. And everybody's accredited to Francis of Assisi after that, and it's not there. He did, and, and here's why that's important. Francis of Assisi was an incredible, he had a very high value of preaching the gospel, but he did also talk about the importance of living out, practicing what we preach. We don't preach an empty message. We preach a gospel of a risen, risen Savior. We preach a gospel that involves the Holy Spirit living inside of His people and transforming us. And putting Jesus, that the Jesus that we preach, putting Him on display through our lives. Francis of Assisi did say this. He said, it's of no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. We, I pray that God would burden our hearts for the community around us, those who aren't in this building right now, to hear the gospel because it's their only opportunity for their sins to be forgiven, for them to be delivered from the bondage that they're in and for them to have eternal life. I am praying, and I know you're praying, that God would burden our hearts and that He would make us effective and fruitful in getting the gospel to this community and to the nations. But friends... We need to consider these questions that I've encouraged you to ask. While we pray for God to save people, to do a work, we've got to make sure that we're walking in submission to Him, striving to display the Gospel, not distract from it. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would help us in the power of Your Spirit to 